Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Is anti-racism harming black people? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Anti-racism is a term most Americans would never have heard just a few years ago. But it became commonplace last summer after the murder of George Floyd and the success of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like many ideas, anti-racism is hard to pin down. If you've heard about it recently, it's likely connected to one of two writers, Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, or Robin DiAngelo, author of White Fragility. Both of these books were massive bestsellers. For Kendi, anti-racism is all about outcomes. Any policy that produces racial inequalities is by definition racist. Any policy that reduces racial inequalities is anti-racist. That's it. D'Angelo's anti-racism is more personal and symbolic. The focus is on white people looking inward and grappling with their own complicity in a racist society. Unsurprisingly, D'Angelo, who is white, has become a darling of corporate diversity consulting. Whatever you think of Kendi and D'Angelo, and whatever you think of anti-racism, it's become a force in American life. And that means it has lots of critics. Chief among them is John McWhorter, a linguist at Columbia University and now a writer for the New York Times. His new book makes an intentionally provocative claim. He says that anti-racism functions more like a religion than an ideology or a political project. And its adherents, he argues, are obsessed with performing virtue, not for the sake of societal change, but because of the sense of purpose it offers them. But McWhorter's more serious charge is that anti-racism isn't merely wrong or performative. It's that it's actually harming the people it claims to support. And his goal, as he puts it, is to, quote, explain why so many black people are attracted to a religion that treats us as simpletons, end quote. McWhorter's book is called Woke Racism. And as you've probably recognized already, it's going to piss a lot of people off. And he knows that. But he says very explicitly in the book that he felt like it was his duty as a black man 
to write it. So I reached out to him to find out why that is. John McWhorter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. You write and speak like someone who is just totally baffled by our racial discourse. You write like someone who thinks his intelligence and the intelligence of most Americans is being insulted in ways we all understand, but don't want to admit out loud. That was certainly the vibe I got from your new book. Am I reading you wrong? Is that a fair summation of kind of where you're coming from? Well, the only thing you're getting wrong is the idea that I'm baffled because I'm not, which makes me even (laughs) angrier. I understand completely where all this is coming from. I understand completely that the people I call the elect really think of themselves as helping society. And what bothers me is that it's painfully clear that where the extremists among these people go is unprecedented, underconsidered, and unwise. It's clear that most people can see this who are paying attention. And yet, our tendency is to knuckle under to what these people demand and pretend that they're making sense because of fear of being called a racist in the public square. I see the United States right now, especially what you might call blue America or in a fusty way, you know, the intelligentsia, as just walking around in fear and enduring what really is a reign of terror. I don't like it. I know that most people don't like it. And I think it's time that we started having the courage of our convictions and making the elect not leave the room, but just sit back down. They used to be seated with the rest of us. That's what I'm seeking. So yeah, but I'm not baffled. It all makes perfect sense to me. I try to understand where people are coming from. I am loath to call anybody crazy. I think evil is rare. But where we are at this point won't do because it's all very, very fake and very, very dangerous. Well, you just used the phrase, and so let's just tackle it now. You said the elect. Who is the elect, and and in what sense are they elect? (laughs) The elect are woke people who are mean about it. So my issue is not being woke. I think of myself as woke in the meaning that it had about six or seven years ago. But there's a certain kind of person who feels that their hard leftist view, their radical revolutionary view of the way the world should be run, is so very much the impregnable, unassailable truth that it justifies firing people, shaming people, making people cry, turning institutions upside down that nobody thought were going too badly before, and in general, being really terrible and threatening people. That kind of person thinks of themselves as bearing a valuable wisdom. And people like that tend to suppose that It will be natural that there will be some excesses that to make an omelet, you have to crack some eggs, but that in the grand scheme of things, it's okay because you're on your way to a brave new world. And yes, all of this sounds exactly like some little things that happened in the Soviet Union and China not too long ago. But the elect, and part of the reason I call them that, is that the elect think that this is different. They really have happened upon a truth. Maybe they think they were chosen in a certain way, the way some religious people think they were chosen. If it's not a matter of them having been chosen, they still think of themselves as special in that way. They bear a wisdom. And they really do think that they're doing well. They think that they're doing good. But unfortunately, their vision of things is a very narrow one based on ideas derived from 
critical race theory. And here we hit this trench that we drive into these days. What is critical race theory? And what I mean is that one thing you can take from critical race theory is an idea that all artistic, moral, and intellectual endeavor should be centered on battling power differentials. That. That's not what anybody says, but if you look and analyze where all of this comes from and why people think such hideous defenestration and hostility is justified, it's because the idea is that power differentials are evil. They must be battled on all levels, that to look away from this is evil, although that's not the word that's used. And therefore, if somebody doesn't focus on that, then they deserve to be banished from society and treated with unspeakable contempt. That's the creed of the elect. And what makes it even more pernicious is that none of them would think of it that way. That's not written in needlepoint and hung on their wall. But that is their modus operandi. And it just won't do. That's not how a mature society can operate. Well, you just invoked critical race theory. And I mean, perhaps you're using that phrase sort of interchangeably with the term anti-racism. And I want people to understand what it is you mean when you refer to anti-racism. Is that basically what you're referring to when you refer to anti-racism, what you just kind of laid out or Do you want to define it differently? Um, I would say that the modern strain of anti-racism is indeed based on that tenet that I mentioned. And that tenet doesn't come from nowhere. That is one place you might take the foundational writings on critical race theory from 30 and 35 years ago. And to me, exactly what Richard Delgado and Kimberly Crenshaw and Regina Austin and the like wrote is – Not really relevant here because most people don't read legal papers. That's not the issue. The issue is how critical race theory has manifested itself among people beyond that little circle of legal scholars, including educators. And that does lend itself to to definitions. But modern anti-racism, yes, is based on a creed that battling power differentials must be central. And if you're not doing that, you are straying from the good. As you know, anti-racism, whenever it's mentioned, is almost always associated with one of two people, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. These are sort of the faces of the movement, for better or worse. But they do seem to have very different approaches. And I'm curious what you see as a connective tissue there. Do you see these two people's philosophies or worldviews as manifestations of the same, to use your word, religion? Yeah, it's interesting that a religion can have different, different streams. And so with Robin DiAngelo, the idea is that before we can change the world, we have to do intense work on our inner psychology and make sure that we understand that racist bias can be profound, that society can be analyzed as racist in ways that you might initially find counterintuitive, and that in general, there is an almost zen-like and extremely self-centered kind of work that especially white people need to do. And that goes way back. To my knowledge, there were people arguing this in the late 60s, that we needed to have these sessions where white people learn to face themselves. And the idea is that that's a prelude to changing society. But you can't help noticing that in her case in particular, to actually try to draw a line from these sessions where people like her teach people that they're racist to, say, making it so that a single black mom can have an easier time raising her children in a housing project. The line is so very thin. And it's because she's not concerned with it. She feels that to look that far ahead is called solutionism, that if you're out there doing things like this and you haven't done the work of analyzing your inner racist beforehand, then you've missed the point. And I think that that is a very interesting, that is a very 
insightful way of looking at how a society has to change. But the basic premise that psychology has to change profoundly before lives can change significantly for one segment of society is unproven. With Robin D'Angelo, we're supposed to just accept that basic premise, and if we don't, we're racist. I disagree. It hasn't been shown to me that what she suggests we do in white fragility is necessary before we get further on the civil rights revolution. And then with Kendi, I have to be careful here. Um, Kendi's idea of a dichotomy between being racist and being anti-racist is interesting. Once again, you're seeking elegance. It's like trying to seek a kind of scientific theory. But once again, I'm not sure that I've seen it demonstrated that that idea of his takes us anywhere. And honestly, I find his analysis of what racism is, including systemic racism, and then more to the point, what you would do about it, extremely underanalyzed. I find his ideas simplistic. And I frankly think most people see that his ideas are simplistic, but you're supposed to pretend otherwise. That's the kind of thing that I mean that's going on, especially since roughly June 2020. But those two people are interesting strains of this new religion. They have different focuses, but I just can't see that what either one of them propose is the way that we need to go. So, for example, with Kendi, when Kendi gives actual proposals, what you get is things like that there should be a department of anti-racism. Now, that's a rather weird idea, and yet he doesn't propose that idea in the way that you would expect a scholar to. You know, what about the Justice Department, Civil Rights Division, etc.? He just doesn't have anything to say about that. Or you shouldn't have standardized tests. You should assess Black children scholastically on their desire to know, on how articulately they describe the circumstances of their own neighborhoods. Once again, is that based on some sort of sustained address of pedagogical theory, education theory? Not really. He just tosses it out there. I'm not impressed. I'm sorry. To me, these ideas are too simplistic. And he has insisted that he wants to keep his ideas simple in order to communicate with the general public. But frankly, I don't mean simple in that way. I do that too. Yes, you have to make your ideas transparent for people who aren't academics. But I mean, even for the general public, I'm not sure what sort of counsel he's actually offering beyond the rather charismatic claim that if you're not being actively anti-racist, then you're a bad person, which takes us back to this idea that you must be battling power differentials or you are evil. We may circle back to Candy, but first, I I think it's important for us to kind of clarify a huge part of the case you're making in this book, which is that this brand of anti-racism isn't just wrong or wrong-headed. It's actually harming Black people. It's decreasing the likelihood of their material conditions improving anytime soon. So can you just explain as briefly as you can why it is you think this approach to dealing with racism is actually uh, counterproductive? I'm glad you asked because that's the point of my book. The point yeah. of the book is not just to explore the religious aspect or to say that we all need to understand each other. So, for example, say that poverty makes black boys more likely to be violent in school. Let's just make that, you know, nervy proposition. I mean, how counterintuitive? I mean, it's obvious. That's what it is. Black boys are more violent in school. And instead, you have philosophy that says that the only reason black boys are suspended more from school is because of bias. And so after a while, in many school districts, violent black boys are suspended less. 
and people get beat up more in the schools and the general grade point average in the school goes down. All of that's been documented. And nevertheless, year after year, you have people who charismatically talk about the bigotry against black boys in schools, ignoring what the actual data is. And what it means is that people get beat up in the schools and it's not white kids. I think some people kind of think it's white kids getting beat up and that's kind of their just desserts. No, for the most part, it's other black and Latino kids who are getting beaten up. So talk about bigotry against black boys and get applause about the suspension issue, but you end up hurting black kids. Second example, we talk about cop killings of black men. I've certainly thought hard about it to the extent that I could, and it is a grievous thing. But there is much more danger in an underserved black community of black men killing one another. A black man is in much more danger of being killed by one of his fellows than by the stray Darren Wilson or Michael Slager. Now, this is not to minimize that the Darren Wilsons and Michael Slagers are involved in very unfortunate incidents. But the naive observer would say, why are people more upset about the stray white cop than the violence within those particular communities? Instead, we're supposed to think to focus on the latter is to pathologize black people, etc. There's this fragile argument that it's worse for somebody to be killed at the hands of the state than at the hands of somebody they know, which frankly makes no sense whatsoever. We're just not supposed to talk about it because we're dealing with a religion that focuses on anti-racism. And so Darren Wilson is more important than the guy from around the block who, you know, might kill the same person under other circumstances. And so what that means is that we focus more attention on the cops than on violence within these communities in question. It's not that there's no focus within the communities, not none, but everybody has to admit we are much more interested in Darren Wilson than in what goes on in black communities where instead we have this taboo on saying things like black-on-black violence. That harms black people in those communities, and many of the people in those communities will tell you that. They don't want the police defunded. And yet, to talk about this is to be accused of being a right-winger or heartless or insufficiently anti-racist or not getting it. It won't do. That's two examples of 20 I could give. And yet, lots of black people do subscribe to anti-racism of the sort you're, you're critiquing here. And you're pretty harsh. I mean, I'll just quote you. You write, quote, my aim is to explain why so many black people are attracted to a religion that treats us as simpletons. Now, you know, there are lots of people that will hear that or read that and feel like you're ignoring or invalidating their experience of the world, that you've reduced their political project to performance art, or simply said they're too dim to know they're being condescended to. To that person or to those people, you say what? Yeah, that's interesting. What I certainly wouldn't want them to think is that I'm saying that they're too dim. It should be clear that I am saying it's performance art. I'm not going to pull back on that. The issue is why so many Black people are tempted to fall into that when they are perfectly brilliant people. And it worries me. My version of what Black people call my people, my people, is why would you read a book by Robin DiAngelo and accept that you are this hothouse flower who needs to be tiptoed around rather than the strong Black person that you actually are? Why would you take advice from somebody like Ibram Kendi and actually subscribe to the idea that to subject a Black person to a test of abstract cognitive ability is racist and then get angry at Charles Murray for a book that says that Black people are the dumbest people in the world? None of that makes any sense. And what I try to get at is that the reason for this is not because 
you know, black people are crazy or something like that. It's nothing like that at all. It's it's quite understandable, but we need to talk about it because we have to get past it. It is the insecurity of a race that was treated like animals for over 300 years. And in some ways today has reason to be insecure. And so what happens is that you seek a substitute kind of self-esteem. And one way that a human being does that is to adopt a victimization complex. And just recently, I've been studying, to an extent, psychologists' conception of the victimization concept, which is not about Black people specifically. It's about people in general. But that is something that the Black community can OD on. And what it means is that your identity is that of the victim. It's what makes you feel important. It's what gives you a sense of purpose if, for one reason or another, you're not getting that from other sources. And that means that if we roll the tape back, some people would be perplexed. And frankly, Caribbean and African immigrants often are. Look at, for example, what Chimamanda often says and gets in trouble for, which is, why would you settle for the idea that conditions have to be perfect or close to it before you can do your best? And so what this means is that you read a book saying that you need to be tiptoed around and you don't feel insulted. You feel validated, even if you're a black person living a middle class existence in 2021, as opposed to a person living in, say, 1950, in which case, even if you were rich, you were still dealing with formalized segregation and disenfranchisement. And then you you look at work like Ibram Kendi's, where the idea is that you are to be exempt from what is required of everyone else. And instead of feeling insulted, instead of kind of getting up in your chair and thinking, no, wait a minute, I can do it, you think, yeah, yeah, to be black is to not be subject to those sorts of things because those other things are white. No, the thing is, this isn't the only way it could be. John McWhorter offers an alternative to a philosophy of anti-racism that he views as disempowering to black people. And for him, that means transcending the long history of racial injustice at the core of the American story. When we come back, I'll ask John if that's really possible. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com box. You can go to shopify.com box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So bear with me here because there's a lot of nuance here and I I really want to know how you think it through. I realize part of your concern is that by reducing black people to historical props, we rob them of their agency. But I would say we're all products of history. We're all products of antecedent causes over which we had no control where you're born, when you're born, to whom you're born. These things determine our lives to a very great degree. So I guess what I'm asking is, how can we talk about the concrete effects of these historical and material factors without absolving Black people of their agency? I mean, I take your point, but I also don't want to deny empirical realities simply because accepting them might lead us into some kind of philosophical cul-de-sac. Well, here it is. Let's say that we have a general acknowledgement that racism of various kinds was responsible for the disparities that we call institutional racism, although I find that a very messy term, but I live in a world where people use it. Yes, it's white people's fault. But what are we going to do about the disparity now? There's a temptation to think that what we have to do about the disparity is going to have something to do with white people realizing something. That's where I lose it. And so as long as white people can realize, yes, these things happen because of racism in the past, and sometimes there's racism in the present. Okay, that's that's true. Yes. Now, what are we going to do about it now? Is it going to be about white people looking inside themselves? Not if that doesn't solve the problem. And so the idea is to have policies in general society that undo what happened before. And it's rare that the way that you undo what happened before is to get rid of the racism. That often is not something that's going to help. Rather, you have to be more creative than that, especially because getting rid of the personal racism will often have nothing to do with it. And getting rid of systemic racism, if you think of it as racism rather than as a disparity that must be fixed, those are two different things. You fix a disparity by, for example, let's say that black kids don't do as well on standardized tests. Well, there are reasons for that that can be traced to certainly racist things in the past, and you might say even in racist things in the present that deprive black kids of good educations, that deprive kids of schools where you learn that kind of reasoning. So liberal civil rights leader 1960 says, how do we get the kids better at the tests? Okay. Now, the problem is getting the kids better at the test doesn't involve wagging your finger in white people's faces. And so the fashion today is to think, well, no, not that, because that's not undoing the racism. It's systemic racism that created this. So let's undo the racism. But that gets into semantics. So there's the difference between me saying, you know, I'm putting a part down my hair and wearing cat eye glasses and smoking cigarettes and becoming a civil rights leader in 1960 and saying, how are we going to get the kids better at the test? Today, the fashion is to have dreadlocks in a suit and say, let's get rid of the tests because the tests are a racist. But, you know, if the kids aren't being tested then they're being deprived of getting the muscle of a certain kind of reasoning, which is going to happen when they are tested in some other circumstance, or in general, in society where abstract reasoning is valued and it takes practice. 
reasoning beyond your immediacy is one of the sole concepts of education. So that's the sort of thing that I mean. Yes, there is a guilt that white people should have, but it can't just stop there because often, for example, if you get run over by a truck, the sad thing is, and this is not a simplistic analogy, it's a perfect one, and I didn't come up with it. Amy Wax of UPenn did. If you get run over by a truck, even though the truck driver is responsible and the truck driver might give you money so that you can have the best physical therapy as possible, it's you who has to execute the muscular movements that teach you to walk again. There's simply no other way. That analogy is something that we're trained not to think about, but I think it's valuable. I hear what you're saying, and I really get that we should not accept, and I understand why you don't want us to accept, that it's some kind of de facto tragedy to be born Black in America. But I guess I do think there is something unavoidably tragic about the historical situation, right? Mm -hmm. No matter how much progress we make, this is a country defined by racial antagonisms at its birth and will never be untouched by the pangs of that history. Now, does it do much good to just continue to lament that fact to the end of time? No, probably not. But it, there is something unavoidably tragic about the situation, no? I think that vision, no offense, Sean, but I think that vision is exaggerated. Oh, please, that no, no offense at all. How so? For two reasons. One, to define United States history on the basis of racism is simplistic. Roll the tape back and a woman could say this country has been defined by sexism. And I think many people would say there's been an awful lot of sexism and things need to be done about it. But isn't that a little simplistic? But with race, we're afraid to say that it's simplistic as well. So for one thing, yes, there is a tragedy, but there have been many. Many people would make an argument about class. Americans don't do that, but it's possible. The Native Americans have a story as well, but you could subsume that under racism. But the United States is not all about racism. Just to be clear, I don't, I don't think that. I, I don't think it's all about okay. racism. Okay. I just want to be clear a tragedy. About that. Okay, yeah. All right. Yes. And then I'll move on. No, I'm glad you said that. But then also, yes, racism is around. But the idea that we must obsess over to the extent that we do, once again, it feels normal because that's all we know. We're like fish that don't know they're wet. But another way of dealing with these things, especially these days, after decades of affirmative action in a modern society where at least personal racism is considered as shameful as pedophilia, really a typical self-directed, self-loving person, and you can extend that to a self-loving ethnic group of people, wouldn't consider it so important. And one way that you see that is how commonly Caribbean and African immigrants are baffled by what we do. And I learned this actually in the, the Caribbean. It really threw me. This was about 30 years ago. I was in Nicaragua, and I was talking to a Creole man there. And I think most of us spontaneously think of Nicaragua as having Latinos, but there are also Creole populations there who are descended from Africans and speak a Creole very much like Jamaican Patois. And he was a local community leader, and they had some real problems in the Creole community, drugs, crime, all sorts of things that, you know, in America, we're very familiar with in our underserved communities. And he was saying, you know, I have a problem with you Black people in America. And I said, what? And he said, why are you always crying? 
You're always saying, oh, it's so terrible. They're racist against me. They don't like me enough. And he was saying, you know, I wish that you guys would just say, I am in this country. I've been here for 350 years, and you're not going to make me move. And if you don't like me, I like me. And if you don't like me, then fuck you. And he kept saying it, saying it. And I remember thinking, yeah, there is no reason that that makes sense in Managua, but not in Detroit or Bed-Stuy. I thought, yeah, we're too plangent. He was right. It's just that we've forgotten what it's like to have that feeling of, yes, we are. Yes, we can. As opposed to, and I say this so often that I'm becoming a cliche to myself, but the mantra in the Black community is, among our intelligentsia, it's funny how you don't see this when you talk to people who are not in the intelligentsia. Among the intelligentsia, the mantra in Black America is, yes, we can't. The idea being that it's articulate to show what we cannot be expected to do. That's really weird in our times. It's funny how you heard so much less of that from W.E.B. Du Bois as opposed to now. We're peculiar moderns. Do you think there was some kind of golden age of racial discourse in the country where at least it kind of mapped on to reality and made more sense or was more productive? I mean, I, I, huh. I guess I could, I could very easily see someone making very similar critiques, and maybe people did, of you know, the abolitionists or the civil rights movement <laughs> activists, right? That they were fanatical, or they were overzealous, they're impractical, right. whatever, right? What is different about this? You know what? The answer to that question is I idealized the civil rights movement until roughly the summer of 1966. Once you get into Black Power and Stokely Carmichael and it being more about emotion and theater than actually changing lives for people on the ground, I I lose the thread. And yes, there were people who thought that Martin Luther King was a fanatic. There were people who wished Frederick Douglass would shut up. But I find it very easy to see what those people were going for because it was concrete. They were fighting segregation. They were fighting disenfranchisement. They were fighting Black people being viewed casually, openly, and consistently as apes. And frankly, they succeeded. Where I lose it is where it all becomes about kabuki. So the golden age was until, for some reason, it's like I ruined it being born. It was roughly until 1966, and then I lose the thread. I was born in 65, and so apparently word got around, and then everything went to hell. Okay. I think we're going to fast forward a little bit because you just used the word kabuki, and I, <laughs> I just know people are going to be losing their shit, yeah. uh, at least the people who like you are like, directly mm-hmm. critiquing here. So let's just, I think maybe the best way to kind of ease into this is, I think it's important for you to just state why it is you think of anti-racism not as a political project or worldview or an ideology, but as a religion, because that's very important to the case you make in this book. Why or how exactly is this philosophy or whatever you want to call it a religion as opposed to any of those other things? Well, you know, there's a whole interview we could do about that, but a couple of things are that if you think about it, the idea of white privilege as a stain that can never be removed, where you're responsible for regularly attesting to it with your hand up in the air, it is precisely like original sin right there. That's one thing. Or another example is, and this occurred to me, um, not that it was some genius insight and other people had had it, but where this occurred to me, ta Coates writes a good article, really good article about reparations. And on Twitter, you have people crying. This is just the most amazing thing. And I remember at the time thinking, yeah, this is a good article, but the way people are responding to this seems to go beyond what I would expect, given that reparations has been discussed a lot and vigorously. And there was a whole book called The Debt by Randall Robinson that was discussed intensely 
for years. And yet ta Coates writes this article and people are writing about it as if it was the second coming. And I repeat, it wasn't that I was thinking, oh, this isn't that good. I was just thinking, why are people acting as if he's opening up a discussion that we've never had before or that was only had, say, 40 or 50 years ago? And I realized, okay, you see, it was scripture. People were reading it not as something new. They weren't learning from it. He was saying something they already knew well. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. To them, that article is like reading from the New Testament. And I really mean that. I'm, I'm not trying to put down the article in a backhanded way. I thought, wait a minute. Ta-Nehisi Coates at this point is being received as a priest as opposed to a writer. I don't think he was seeking that. But I thought, wait a minute, th- that explains a lot of this. And then I started thinking about the white privilege and the original sin. But the main part is that a religion often involves a degree of suspension of disbelief. There's a point at which you're supposed to give in to a certain kind of illogic. You're supposed to have faith. And you have that in this religion, too, in that only that aspect, and it's specifically that you are supposed to attest that you are not racist and that you know that racism exists. That's the central tenet here. So in Christianity, it's about showing that you have faith in Jesus. In this religion, it's about showing that you know racism exists. If that's what you have to do, then you're going to have a way of ignoring certain things, which under another religion, for example, you would find more important. And that just returns us to the white cop being more important than black on black homicides. All sorts of things where you would wonder, why is this so much more important than that? And it's because this religion forces you to pay attention to racism, even when that might not be what helps people of a race who actually need help. Okay, allow me to just go slightly political theory nerd for just a second, (laughs) Uh, because I think your distinction between an ideology and a religion is blurry. So Mm -hmm. I think your definition of a religion is sufficiently expansive to include basically every major political ideology that I can think of. Mm -hmm. Every ideology is a story about the world. It's a story about why things are the way they are. And to be an ideologue is to accept the terms of that story. Mm -hmm. It's to accept its interpretation of history and its heroes and villains. And once you've made that philosophical move, you're committed to defending that story, to making Mm -hmm. the world fit into that conceptual box. And I would say you have to distort the world to make it fit into that box. But that's another question, right? So it's not that your critique is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it just overstates the uniqueness of this phenomenon and maybe fails to appreciate just how thin the line between politics and religion is and has always been. You know, that's a neat point because I'm always talking about what would happen if you just rolled it back and and did it again. Would another group of humans see a difference or, you know, lexicalize a difference between ideology and religion. I'm very much open to that, but why I am disinclined to call this just another ideology is because of a certain fervency in how this ideology is conducted, where, for example, body language comes into it that is modeled on what we call a religion rather than ideology. People put their hands up into the air. People put their bodies on the ground in the name of this particular religion. That is a kind of visceral submission, even your body, that you don't see in somebody who is a communist. You know, that there might be certain symbols. And then more to the point, I would say, there's the issue of heresy, 
You know, what do you do if you have an ideology, if someone disagrees? And if you're elect, if someone disagrees, you don't just not like them. You feel that they should be defenestrated. They should lose their job. They should be stripped of their honors. They should be basically banished from society. I must read something that happens every day based on this sort of thing. That fervor is different from an ideology. So you have the quote-unquote knee-jerk liberal and the arch-conservative in 1973 having an argument. And they're they're going to be going at it. They're going to hate each other. Okay, that's fine. But today, that quote-unquote, that's an archaic term now, but the knee-jerk liberal, the elect person doesn't only not like the conservative's views. The elect person thinks the conservative is somebody who should not be around them. And so you have, for example, an Andrew Sullivan who has to leave New York Magazine because the people who work there feel sullied by the presence of his writings. And remember that this happened when everything was virtual. It's not like anybody's meeting him in the bathroom. It's just abstract. That, to me, says religion. It's the religious side rather than having, say, a Reaganite ideology of the world that means that you keep on believing in trickle-down economics even though it doesn't make any sense. It, look, my view has always been human beings will seek absolutes. We, we desire these kind of capital T true stories about the world. And, and when they're not supplied by conventional religion, we'll find them in politics. And that's part of the story here. And it goes well beyond you know, anti-racism or wokeness or whatever. So I do think it's a problem that people get invested in a Manichaean story about the world, that they anchor mm-hmm. their identity to that story and then find it very hard to amend it as the world around them changes. That is absolutely religion. But again, it's also politics. And you just mentioned communism. And that's interesting, you know, because one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading your book is, even though I agree with a good bit of it, I found myself thinking that you had an expectation of intellectual rigor or precision for anti-racism that I'm not sure any mass ideology Hmm. would ever meet, right? Give me an example. That's interesting. Okay. You could ask a communist 70 years ago to describe the utopia he was building or, you know, ask a run-of-the-mill Marxist at any time to explain the concept of alienation. And you'll probably get a a bunch of, you know, half-baked platitudes, right? And I guess that's only to say that when you reach the ground level, these worldviews or religions or whatever you want to call them are always reduced to slogans and abstractions. But that doesn't mean the whole project is completely vacuous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, it's not that being anti-racist, whatever that term means, it's not that there should not be major efforts to make life better for Black people who need help in this country, and, and specifically things with Black people in mind, although it's always pragmatic to have things that apply to the poor in general. Yeah. That really has to happen. And we do have to check ourselves for racism. My humble opinion, and it's humble because it's really just mine, is that we've gotten about as far as we're going to go on that. I think that we have gotten to the point where a good number of white people of all levels of education know to look inward. And I'm not sure that we even need more than what there is. But but you're right. No, I have no expectation that every anti-racist is going to be able to cite chapter and verse of what Kimberly Crenshaw writes, et cetera, or is going to you know, have thought about every single permutation of what's going on. But you know, Sean, I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to make myself seem trivial, but I think this is actually useful. The reason I wrote this book was when one day I found out that my food columnist was gone. It was Allison Roman, and she was writing for The Times, and she used to have these great recipes. And I know you can find her somewhere else now, but 
all of a sudden she was gone and she was helping me get through the pandemic with her recipes. And I found out, well, the reason she's gone is because she said a couple of snarky things about Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen. And she was deemed a racist for doing that because Marie Kondo is a Japanese citizen and Chrissy Teigen is half Thai. That's when I realized this has really gone over the rails. Now, the people who got her fired, I don't know what they can quote chapter and verse of, but I thought we're allowing people like that a power that really scares me if this goes any further. And frankly, after Alison Roman, it went much, much further all over society. But yeah, I'm not expecting everybody to be able to be intellectually sophisticated about these things. But it got to the point starting in summer of 2020 when things that made no sense were being accepted by a very wide range of people on the basis, frankly, of whether or not you're thinking about these things from A to B to C on the basis of just fear. And that's just not the way a society should be run. Whether you think of it as cancel culture or as accountability, John McWhorter says that these reactionaries are motivated by blind faith, not rational thought. But isn't that a bit dismissive? That's what I'll ask him after one more short break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? I just want to be super clear about this. I, too, worry about racial essentialism, Mm -hmm. uh, about this idea that our race defines us, that it's the most important thing about us, that we're all simply avatars for our racial group. And I do also worry that the abstractions have become disconnected or or increasingly distant from the reality they claim to represent. I, I will grant you that there's something there. And even if you're right that some of this or most of it are even all of it is essentially religious. To say as you do that it's beyond reason Hmm. is a bit dismissive, right? I mean, you do say at one point, I'll just quote you, that there's no discussion to be had, end quote, right? I mean, do you not allow for the possibility that there's maybe something true or worthwhile here? I mean, is it really nothing but but virtue signaling and and performativity? Do you see an earnest attempt to change minds, however maybe ill-conceived it might be? I hate to say it, Sean, because I inherently I have a snotty voice and a snotty demeanor, <laughs> and then Come I'm on. saying these things. But you know, no, 
the excess lately, I see no value in. Where people are getting fired and shamed and hurt and made to say things they don't believe, no. And so, for example, last story I read about this morning is this, he's a teacher. I believe he's of Chinese descent, and he's trying to have a discussion about Othello and the progress of Othello from play to opera. And he starts out by showing the classic Othello film with Sir Lawrence Olivier. Sir Lawrence Olivier blacked up to play Othello. That was the tradition back then. He didn't do a trigger warning. And some students were so offended that he showed a clip from this with somebody in blackface that they got him dismissed from the class. And he is enduring all sorts of sanctions. He apologized, but people didn't want to hear it. Part of his apology was explaining how many things he had done in service to anti-racism. That was considered defensive and not the point. It's clear that he's just not allowed to apologize. This was a class for undergraduates. The graduate students in the department were reaching out to the undergraduates. Sean, I'm sorry, but that won't do. I mean, maybe that guy should be told. These days, if you're going to show even Sir Lawrence Olivier in blackface in the 1950s, you need to say a little something about how that was the practice and that you're not saying that this was a good thing, but you want to show this artful film. But instead, when he didn't do it, instead of getting a little speaking to, he has to be put in pillory. That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with today. And no, I see no value in that happening in him. And the problem is that something like that nowadays happens every day. Well, okay, first off, let me just, again, to be super clear, that is in insane and stupid, and I would never defend it. <laughs> um, but you did just say it, something like that happens every day. I, I don't know, John, does it really? I mean, sometimes, for me at least, it's hard to know whether we're talking about Twitter or real life. Hmm. And I I keep saying all the time, these are not the same, right? There's all this absurd, mm -hmm. ridiculous discourse that unfolds online where people are being called racist left and right, and it's dumb and toxic and all that. And sometimes we forget that Twitter is a simulacrum. It is not <laughs> representative of the actual world, which is just a really long bloated way of saying it's not always clear how much actual harm is being done and how much of this is a relatively narrow segment of the population barking at each other online and mostly insular spaces. Look, all these examples that you, some of which you, you go over in the book and, and you just mentioned one now of like people being kind of canceled or fired, that is all dumb. And I, I denounce all of it. I, I grant mm -hmm. all of that. But again, to the broader point about how much of this is real and how much of it appears to be real. You know what? I, I have to criticize myself because I'm sitting here saying every day. Now, do I really mean that I'm aware of something like that happening every 24 hours? No. And in this, I'm committing the tort that a certain kind of black person commits in saying they endure racism every day, every day. And I always think to myself, almost certainly you do not. And yet here I am doing the same thing for rhetorical purpose. <laughs> However, I would say, I can definitely say this, every week. And the reason is because quite unintentionally, Glenn Lowry and I have become apparently unofficial clearinghouses for things like this. <laughs> I definitely get a note about something like this every single week. And for a while, it's, yeah. tra it's trailed off now, but for about six months, especially the second half of 2020, I was getting something literally every day, every day, every day, like with the occasional off day from some academic who was scared to death. And so was Glenn, and it wasn't always the same people. And it's the kind of thing where we have to remember what we consider a crisis, depending on what our commitments are. And so, for example, Michelle Goldberg at the Times, and I have no beef with Michelle, but she was saying in one of her pieces recently that there have been something like 400 cases reported of the left 
censoring professors. And she said, well, if that were anything else, like some medical phenomenon or something, we'd consider the problem to be solved. That's just not very many. But as far as I'm concerned, if we heard about 400 cases of white cops killing black boys and men, even over a longer period of time than a year, that would be treated as evidence of a crisis in racism in the United States and evidence that to be black is to walk around in fear of being killed by a cop. So what do we call a a crisis? To me, hearing about something like this happening every week when I didn't before, and there's all evidence that it wasn't happening every week before, is evidence that Something is happening in the culture that deserves comment, and that really is alarming. And I get it that for some people, it's more alarming what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. I get to some people, it's more alarming that the planet is about to burn. I I I get it, but I'm not sure that I'm on to just some trivia that I find interesting because of this world of Twitter that I have the same opinion of (laughs) that you do. Okay. I take all those points and and you you emphasize in the book how much I guess to use your words resplendent progress uh we've <laughs> made over that? the last <laughs> okay. you did you did and I agree we have this is not 1960 or or 1860 by any mm-hmm. measure and there is I, I think you're right a desire to pretend as though the climate hasn't changed or improved as much as it has in order to kind of prop up the sense of besiegement or emergency. And yet, as we talk, there is, and you address this in a book, so I, I want to put it to you here, there is a massive coordinated effort spanning several states by Republicans to suppress the black vote. Is it Jim Crow? No. Is it a kind of political emergency? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a threat to our republic. But in the book, you kind of minimize it, pointing to the fact that Biden was elected in large part because of black voters, which is Mm -hmm. true. But that's not an argument against the downstream effects of what's being carried out right now, right? There is an actual crisis, no? And there is something against which to fight, right? I mean, it's not all made up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, what the Republicans are doing is utterly disgusting in part because I see it as, you know, talk about Othello, Iago, (laughs) it is a callous pragmatism. They think, well, black people all vote Democratic, and so we're going to do all of this. And, you know, the shamelessness and refusing to admit that this voter fraud that they're calling attention to basically doesn't exist. It's disgusting. It needs to be fought, certainly. Where I depart with the general intelligentsia consensus is the idea that it's the same thing as the poll tax coming from the same racism, that Charles Blow-esque perspective. No, the people who didn't want black people to vote 100 years ago didn't want black people to vote in large part because they thought of black people as animals who needed to be subordinated and weren't supposed to have any power in society. This isn't that. Now, you can say that to prioritize the pragmatic over the fact that you're disfranchising a disproportionate number of people who are black, you can say that that is racist because it suggests that you don't prioritize anti-racism as much as you should. That's a very different argument. Um, You're right. I don't address the voting issue much in the book. However, it doesn't mean that I don't think that that's a problem. However, I don't see it as those bigots. I see them as disgusting, callous, operators. They don't prioritize racism to the extent that even someone like me would prefer that they did. But I don't see them as vardamans. I I don't see them as recapitulations of that. I think that's a simplistic view of how social history works. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. I'm not sure I would agree that they don't 
prioritize racism as much. They certainly don't vocalize it as, as much because it's simply not as acceptable to do so as it was, you know, in, in 1960 or 1955 or whatever. But I, I take the broader point. This is a genuine question for you, Sean. How do you know that? Genuine question. You're saying that really they are bigots. They just they're not going to say it out loud. I don't hang out with many people like that, but what is your evidence that they actually are what we would call a, a bigot? Well, to me, that's the wrong question. It's irrelevant. What I, I don't care what's in their hearts or heads. I, I care about the implications and the consequences and, and the outcomes of what they're doing, of the policy, right? And the policies mm-hmm. are designed very clearly to marginalize and depress very. a very specific vote, right? And that's Obviously. racist, whether or not like you know, they're Bull Connor or whatever, to me, it doesn't really matter, right? But the, the intent and the outcome of the policies they're pursuing is racist. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the most important thing. Yeah. It, it's this word. You could do a whole book about the word. Yes, because they are doing something deliberately to black people that disadvantages black people. That is a racist act. And they think that that's okay because they're more interested in keeping Republicans in office. Yeah. To me, maybe this is splitting hairs, but to me, that's different from we don't want the N-words voting because they're not supposed to. It's something someone thought of as a way of getting more Republican votes where they figured, we don't care that this keeps black people from voting. What we want is to have as, you know, we want to be in office. I get the feeling they think because we have the truth and, you know, you have to break some eggs to, to make an omelet. But yes, I very much take the point. And that is not something to ignore. My answer to that is not black people need to get over it or something like that. No, that needs to be fought. I mean, the news is that what they're doing is not as effective in suppressing the black vote as we thought. And for me, that is something to cheer about that, you know, thank God it doesn't work as well as they were hoping. But you can't just stop there. It is a disgusting practice. Yeah. And look, we we could go on and on about this for forever. Uh, but I do want to ask you before we go, because I think it's very important you know, what do you think the alternative to anti-racism is? Because I think we all agree, all decent people agree that we share the goal of wanting to make the country less racist. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you eschew, you know, some grand, like, you know, hundred point plan about how to make, how to make the country better. And I don't think it's fair to ask you to sum up your kind of three top priorities, which are ending the drug war, teaching people to read correctly and increasing access to vocational training. But I, I guess maybe a simpler way to ask you is, is why those three priorities for you? Yeah, it's based on a certain philosophy. Racism has left black people in a certain place. However, it's kind of like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, Eliminating racism is not the way to solve those problems. That's just not the way social history works. So I look for things that will put black people in a place where they are less likely where we are less likely to experience racism and its effects. And my assumption, and in this, I suppose I become quote-unquote a conservative, my assumption is that there will always be racism to an extent, and I think we'll be okay. I'm not interested in wagging my finger in someone's face and implying to them that their feelings about me have anything to do with how I feel about myself. I don't like putting myself in the down position, and I wish that more black people felt that way with me. So one of my planks, and we only need to discuss one, is get rid of the war on drugs. It was formulated partly out of racist intent, for one thing, yeah. and it just it destroys black communities. It 
down presses incentive to find legal work because it's so tempting to spend time with people you know doing something that you grow up watching other people do. And it sends people to jail. Often you have kids and the kids grow up without you. You have a fatherless child. You come out of jail, you're probably addicted to something, you're practically unemployable, and you just end up going around in a cycle. The war on drugs has been the worst thing for the black community since Jim Crow. And being easier on marijuana is a nice start, but I firmly believe, and in this I suppose I'm a radical, heroin and cocaine and the rest should be available in regulated doses to people who want them. But you shouldn't be able to make a living selling things like that on the street. And so I, my sense is that we can improve things in the black community with fixes like that. If just ending the drug war alone would change black America in a single generation, I firmly believe. But to many people, that's not anti-racist enough. And That's what I mean by the religion, in that if it isn't about battling racism, it's less interesting, regardless of what an effect it would have on the black community. Some years ago, before I had kids and I had more time, I remember talking. The NAACP actually consulted me a couple of times on ending the drug war. It was something they were wrapping their heads around. And I'm glad that they did. And to be honest, I'm not sure what came of it. But they were thinking, hmm, this would help black communities. That, to me, was activism. That, to me, was genuine concern with making life better for Black people. And then some years later, all of a sudden, we're talking about racism versus anti-racism and how you have to do the work of identifying the racist within you. I was more impressed with what the NAACP was doing, and I think we need to go back to that orientation. Well, to bring this thing to a close, you, you write something very interesting at the end of the book, and I'm going to go there because you went there. Oh, I know what this is. You know, I, like, I, <laughs> I know you know where I'm going. Look, I am just a white guy who's, I hope, operating in good faith, trying to understand all sides of this. Mm-hmm. And you write, and I'll just quote you. There is a place we must go, a question that will hover over assessments of this book. The question is appropriately addressed right here and now. Am I black enough to write this book? And you also say at the beginning that you felt it was your duty because you're a black man. Mm -hmm. to write this book. Why did you feel you had to go there? And what is your answer to that question? Oh, you have to go there because, you know, I sound white when I talk. I'm upper middle class. I guess you could call me a successful person. The mother of my children was white. I wear cardigan sweaters. And so, you know, there is a sense that, well, is he authentically black? Is he black enough? He didn't grow up poor. You know, he's studying his nerdy little linguistics. You know, he looks like he can't really bust a move. And so how are we going to listen to him about things concerning the black community when he seems like such a white black person? There are people thinking it. And we're supposed to roll our eyes, but no, there are people thinking it. I understand why they are, and it deserves an answer. And one of the answers is that remember that it's not supposed to matter whether I'm a whiteified black person when it comes to the cops, which is so central to the way we talk about race. Supposedly, with the cops and everything else, people are just looking at my skin and treating me as this subordinate being. The meat of the issue is that it's regardless of class, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of demeanor, you are constantly being underestimated. People are cutting up your credit cards. You can't get the proper hotel room. You get seated in the back of the restaurant, all of that. So, It shouldn't matter that I am hopelessly bourgeois and that I wear cardigan sweaters, as I put it in the book. The issue is supposedly that 
Any black person suffers these slings and arrows every day, every day, every day. And so I insist that my proposals be assessed on the basis of whether or not they hold up. And maybe they don't. But yeah, it's important. And people say, well, what does that mean? Is he is he black enough? And it means those things. There's a sense that some people are more culturally black than others. And you know what? That's true. And it's okay. But I won't accept that my book doesn't work because I can't talk about my mother having been a single mother, because I don't have an X in the middle of my name, because I'm not a character from The Wire. It just doesn't go through. I'm quite black enough. Blacker than many people think, culturally, is the next thing. But I needed to say that because people would be thinking it, both black people and white people. Well, I am definitely not an arbiter of what's black and what's not. <laughs> but, John, I do want to say we agree about plenty of things. We, we disagree about other things. But I've always found you to be a very clear thinker and writer. And I very much appreciate this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for having it with me, Sean. I appreciate it. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 